Bruce Cook is honored to have you join his conversations with people committed to talking with heart and brain functions in full operating gear. No spin, no agenda, just authentic conversation on just about anything. Welcome to the Bruce Cook Conversation. With less than 1% of some 60 million American kids in sports making it to elite status, sports writer Tim Wigmore from the Daily Telegraph in the United Kingdom shares with Bruce his research on how to develop a kid with exceptional talent, the surprising factors that make all the difference in creating champions. Wigmore put his findings in a book he co-authored with Mark Williams titled, The Best, How Elite Athletes Are Made. The Bruce Cook Conversation with your host, Bruce Cook. Trending now, here's your host, Bruce Cook. Brought to you by the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute at Hode. Good evening, radio listeners. It's Bruce Cook on Angels Radio AM 830 tonight. It is always an honor to be speaking with everyone from Los Angeles to Orange County to the Inland Empire. Angels Radio has a wonderful broad reach across Southern California. And every Sunday night we try and talk about a variety of subjects that have some meaning in our lives locally and, and broadly, bigger, bigger lives. It's been a certainly it has certainly been a week of turmoil worldwide. Our political uh, situation is very, very complicated, very critical right now. But I'm not going there tonight, ladies and gentlemen. You have many choices on radio, on television, on social media of all kinds to hear about, to talk about, to digest what is going on in our country and in the world. We're going to stick with sports tonight. We're going to change the templar, the temper, the tone, lower the temperature a bit, and uh, maybe learn a little bit. I have a very special guest calling in tonight, actually calling in at 2 in the morning from London, England. He is a sports reporter with the Daily Telegraph, which many of you know about, follow online probably, maybe even in person. His name is Tim Wigmore, ladies and gentlemen, and he is a the co-author with a gentleman named Mark Williams of a book which is just coming out. It's titled The Best, colon, how Elite Athletes Are Made. It's fascinating. Sports has become a science. I think we all know that. It's not as simple as a kid starting playing soccer or baseball in a dirt lot at five or six years old. It's not quite that easy and simple anymore. It's not quite that gentle. It is a business. It is a science. And it is a worldwide, worldwide passion. People are crazy for their sports. We're going to find out how, in the 21st century, under all this new culture, an elite athlete is separated from all the rest, according to Mark Williams and now Tim Wigmore. Tim, are you there? Hi there. I'm here, yeah. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm sorry I had to stay up so late. No, no, it's uh, it's it's a pleasure. It's um, it's locked down over here, so it it breaks up quite a, a boring phase of uh, boring of and uh, dull phase of, of life for us. So yeah, it, it's great to chat. How is your health? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm all good, thanks. And you and you? Doing fine. I have to ask you to be really careful. Talk slowly and into your phone or microphone, whatever you're using, because along with your British accent and the distance, I don't want the audience to turn off because they can't understand you. So with that as a starting point, what is this all about? What motivated you to join Mark and write a book about how to create an elite athlete? Why is this important? Thanks, thanks very much. Yeah, so we, so Mark has been researching this for his whole, his whole life, really. At the University of Utah at the moment, actually, um, and my job was to go out and and interview athletes about their experience, including a load of uh, elite U.S. athletes such as uh, Elias Delzon, Pete Sampras, Seth Curry. Perfect. 
Bayer, um, list goes on, and and it was the sort of yeah, talk to them about their experiences and, and see how that that married up with, with the science and um, came up with a lot of yeah, fascinating discoveries. You know, a very basic one actually is that if you had uh, a younger sibling, they're probably better at sport than you. Why um, is that? Why when, would it, why would a younger person be better? Actually, you mentioned that in your book. I think as an example, you pick you talk about Serena Williams and Venus Williams. What are you talking about? Yeah, so if you if you look at a picture of you know lots of famous pictures of Serena and Venus when they're playing as as kids, and obviously you'll see that you know when they're seven or eight, um, there was fifteen months between them, um, and Venus is normally you know two or three inches taller than Serena, um, and that means you know until they're adults, Serena has this disadvantage. So she is she's smaller than, than Venus. She's probably not not as fast, not as strong. But what happens? Well, she has to make up for those disadvantages, you know, in other ways. And that that means skills, it means tactics, it means it means the mental side of the game being being very, very strong. And um, and and basically if you're a younger sibling, you always have that uh that older sibling to, to drive you on. You have that kind of really hard competition and actually we know um you basically you develop skills at a faster rate when you're failing more, when you're being challenged more. Um, and if you're playing, you know, if there's two siblings and they're playing tennis or something, and one is two years older, well, the one who's younger is going to generally be losing. They're going to be therefore failing more, and they will actually, because of those that failure, they will be pushed on more, um, and they will learn more. And that's just a really good lesson more more broadly in sport because. Yeah, I know. You know, everyone who has their sort of ten-year-old son or daughter, they want them to to win all the time. Um, but actually, rather than dominating in say their particular age group, they would be better off sometimes um, playing up with older children and you know losing and failing more. Um, that would actually be better for them in, in the long run. Very interesting comment, and it makes sense. And I'm glad that you expanded it and said that. You know, if your if your son or daughter does not have an o- older sibling to bring them up, have your kid go out and find an older athlete that they can play against and and practice that same kind of competitive edge. It makes perfect sense. And one of the other really uh, important filings which is linked to this is that um, in general, the amount of informal play, so you know that playing with their you know their friends and family in a park or whatever. Well, the amount of informal play that kids do is really, really crucial for their development and actually seems to be a good predictor of who will go on to be an elite athlete. Um, so the message here is, you know, playing in the you know, academy, you know, formal training, and that, that is important and it has its, its worth. But informal play is so, so important because what, what that does, that kind of encourages uh, young athletes to think for themselves, to kind of, basically to diagnose problems and, and adapt on the fly. And that's such an important skill. And um, you can't just rely on your coach or your, your mum or your dad to tell you, tell you what to do. You have to kind of have that basic think for yourself. Um, and that's, you know, we've, from the, all the studies on this, shows that the amount of formal play is a really, really important factor. Um, so I think another, another lesson that we talk about in our book well, what you're doing, what your parents can, can can help kids by encouraging them to have more informal play. But but what you're also saying, I think, if I interpret this right, and I I also think you go into this, is because of that concept, kids from smaller or mid-sized towns where there are more parks and there's more opportunity for being outside and having formal play, informal play is more likely to produce that quality athlete than a kid that grows up in a big city is that correct yeah or is that not is that not fair no no that that is true if you're from a a mid-sized town and all things being equal um you you should have more chance of becoming a a leading athlete um and the reason for that is that you know kids in in these smaller towns well they generally they do more informal play they also kind of have less faster travel between uh, between their different, you know, sporting fixtures. So, you know, they spend less time sort of in that car being lugged around from match to match and more time actually 
being able to practice. They also tend to get more informal play. And actually, the, the culture sometimes seems to be more beneficial. So we see that in big cities, the dropout rate for the number of kids who quit a particular sport in a particular year is, is often significantly higher than in, in mid-sized towns. So there's actually lessons there in, in bigger cities where coaches seem to, seem to only really focus on the kind of the very, very best in a particular age group. Um, and that means if you're a later developer, you will get discouraged and you, you will drop out of the sport. Whereas in these smaller areas, that does not seem to happen in the same way. Um, so that's another really, really important method, actually, that we talk about in our development. What do you say about so many of our great athletes right now and in, in recent years have not come from structured situations. They've come out of poverty in places like Central America. Here in Los Angeles with the Angels baseball team, we have a star player uh, <clears throat> named Albert Pulhos, who came from nothing in the Dominican Republic. And there are many other stories about these elite athletes that are developed in places where you would think they would not have the chance or the opportunity to develop skills. How do you talk about this? Yeah, so what we see in the midst of the Dominican Republic produces about one in ten players in Major League Baseball, which is incredible. Um, and the reason for that, it, it stems from culture, really. And so the culture of baseball there is it's so strong that that encourages the other factors that I talked about. So kids there get a huge amount of informal play. They also, because of coaching there, there's often a limited amount of coaching for the young kids. Well, that encourages kids to think to themselves. It also means, we talked about the sibling effect and how young siblings do better. Well, one of the great things in a, in a, it's on with a lot of informal play, it means that if you're, if you're the first-born child, you'll be playing informal games and you'll be playing with kids who are older than you. So you almost kind of get the benefits of being little sibling, even if you're not a little, little sibling. Um, and, and I think we have to look at, at sort of at parents, actually. Um, I think it's, if parents are restricting their kids from, from playing informally and also kind of micromanaging all of their, their sporting time and, and, and actually demand, and, and giving them a lot of feedback, that can be very, very bad for them, actually. So we know that young athletes learn more when there is less feedback. And we also know that young athletes learn more when they're, they're not just focused on the next match, but, but a kind of immediate, their improvement in the medium term. So I think one of the, the lessons in that, in that book for kind of probably for parents and for youth coaches is don't just make it all about the next game and trying to you know, make your kid as good as possible in that. Think about the medium term a bit more. And, and by, by doing that, it means you give less feedback and, and that encourages the kids to take ownership for themselves and actually understand what they're doing and then actually have the toolkit to, to adapt. And the less feedback is, is better in general for athletes to improve and be the best they can be in, say, five years' time as opposed to five minutes' time. I, I hope that there are parents listening to you tonight on our radio program, Tim. Uh, interesting talk. I want to talk a lot more about how parents raise their children as athletes, but before we do... I got to ask you about the influence of electronic toys in kids' lives today that have taken them away from the sporting world and being outside and playing on their own and doing other things with their friends and and just playing because so many kids are addicted to video. How has this impacted raising an athlete in today's time? You talked about the number of baseball players in the Dominican Republic earlier. And I think part of one explanation for that is in general, these kids are, they're outside more and they're spending you know, less, less time inside playing Xbox or whatever. So clearly, um, yeah, playing computer games, if you want to be an elite athlete, well, it's, it's not, it's not going to help you become a leading athlete. Um, it's not going to, you know, you're not going to get any formal play, you're just not going to get the, the physical, the fitness. I think we do see silly friends, um, and we also see parents seem to kind of be often be unwilling to kind of let their kids play informally. Um, and this is a, a trend that you know, well, if that's the case, then their kids will not really have any chance. Of there. 
We're gonna take we're gonna take a quick break, Tim. You're breaking up again, so I caution: please be careful because I don't want to lose our audience because it's annoying. So, be really careful. We're gonna take our first break. It's really great having you on the show. We got a lot more to talk about, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Bruce Cook. I'm talking to Tim Wigmore live tonight from London, England, and we will be back in one minute. At the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute, the Hogue Epilepsy Program is accredited by the National Association of Epilepsy Centers as a Level 4 Epilepsy Center. This means that our experts provide the highest level care for patients with complex epilepsy. Our patient-centered approach to epilepsy treatment combined with state-of-the-art technology, including robotics and laser ablation, ensure the best possible outcomes for our patients. To learn more or for an evaluation, call 949-966-0243 or visit hogue.org forward slash epilepsy care. Mike Capozio here, General Manager of Rotolo Chevrolet. Sports is back, and that's exciting. You can't go, but we can watch. Because sports, just like Rotolo, is playing it safe. And safety is still our number one priority for our customers and employees. All the fun is here. If it's a big round ball, a little ball, an oval ball, even a puck, it's back. So shop online at Rotolo.com or schedule a delivery, and Rotolo will bring the fun to you. Chevy, find new roads. If you have unfiled taxes or are in debt to the IRS, this is important news. The IRS just rolled out a new program to help struggling taxpayers more easily resolve their tax problems. It's called the Taxpayer Relief Initiative, and it opens up powerful new options for people looking to get back on the right track with the IRS. And no one knows this program like the professionals at Optima Tax Relief, America's most trusted tax resolution company. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debt for their clients and have the expertise and experience to help you. One easy call to Optima can start the process, helping to put an end to your worries of wage garnishment, asset seizure, and other aggressive IRS actions. Make today the beginning of your fresh start with the IRS. Call the experts at Optima Tax Relief now for your free confidential consultation. Call 800-375-2922. 800-375-2922. 800-375-2922. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, please visit OptimaTaxRelief.com. Progressive presents an interview with your upstairs neighbor. Hey, it's Rick from Upstairs. Yeah, I take it seriously. When I play R&B at 1 in the morning, that's me saying, hey, I'm here for you. And I enjoy repetitive bass lines. I only use expired batteries in my smoke detectors. <laughs> nice, right? Yeah, Upstairs neighbors help people forget their troubles. Give them something else to focus on. Ooh, want to see how high I can jump? Progressive can't save you from your upstairs neighbor. No, wait, let me try again. But we can save you money when you bundle renters and auto insurance with us. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. I like a bed that's really firm. I need something a little softer than that. Rest easy. With the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed, you can both adjust your comfort with your Sleep Number setting. Can it really help me fall asleep faster? Yes, by gently warming your feet. Okay, but can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. Sleep Number, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, during the lowest prices of the season, the Queen Sleep Number 360 C2 Smart Bed is only $8.99. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Angels Radio. AM 830. Hey, hey, hey. I got a condo in Manhattan. Baby girl, what's happening? You and your invited. So go and get to clapping. Go pop a phone. And we're back, everybody. It's Bruce Cook. This is the Bruce Cook Conversation live tonight on Angels Radio, AM 830, Orange County, Los Angeles, Inland Empire. Our guest tonight is calling in live now at almost 2.15 in the morning from London, England. His name is Tim Wigmore, and we're talking how to raise an elite athlete in today's world. If you're just joining us, we left off before the break talking about the influence of parents. Tim, I want to ask you something. In your book, you talk about parents knowing and understanding the scientific research of sports in dealing with their children. And you also talk about teaching or figuring out how to instruct kids in what is known as left-hand dominance in sports. Why is that important? Why is that a factor? And what does that mean? Hi there again. Yeah, so well, it's 
it's a it's a really big factor because uh, essentially if you're a left hand so one in ten people generally are left handers around the world um and if you're a left-hander in, in sport, you have a big advantage because basically your opponents are not as used to playing against a left-hander. Um, and we know in baseball there's a massive advantage if you're a left-hander. So about 30% of pitchers are left-handed in baseball, which is three times more than the general the share of the population. Um, but left-handers, they can be made as well as born. So there's an amazing stat that we talk about, which is that um, if you're a right-hander um, in baseball, but you uh, are you bat top-hand dominant, which means you put your right hand uh, at the top of the bat, so you you kind of bat as if you're a, a left-hander, then you are six times more likely to go on and play in the major leagues. Six times more likely, so it's a massive, massive advantage, um, and that's basically because it gives you better control of the bat, plus you get the advantage of pitchers are just less used to pitching to a left-hander than a right-hander. Um, you you so just that, said you that, just said that left-handing left-hand function can be learned or trained. How? Uh, so in in baseball you basically you, you switch hands and um, and by that I mean so I'm a, a right-hander so I would naturally put my right hand at, at the bottom and hold the bat that way but if I put my right hand at, at the top um, then I'm I'm batting as if I'm left-handed, um, and that's the way. So it's it's really in, in this case, it's you know about when children are very very young, about just trying to to make it the norm for that for them to to switch hands from right right side to left-handed, um, and that way, yeah, that's shown to be harder at the start. So you know, the first year or two, it will be more difficult, um, but actually. In the long run, the medium run, it's a lot, lot better. So that's, you know, to any parent, actually, that's a really basic but powerful bit of good advice. You know, if they, if they want their, their kids to, you know, go on and play baseball and, and be good at baseball, well, um, switching hands, so batting as a left-handed to the right-handed is a really, really good thing you can do. It buys you a lot more lottery tickets. Is this is this commonly known uh, today by most parents in average places, or is this something that is a secret of the sports world for people that are really in the know. I know that it's a factor, but how widespread is this knowledge? And do you think that a lot of parents in America are taking their five-year-old kids and instituting this kind of this kind of practice to see if it works and having them work at it? Or do you think they're thinking maybe it's a little too young? Well, the numbers of kids who are doing it, it's, it's still a a relatively small number, you know. It should really be everyone who who is doing it as, you know, being is trying to do it, um, and then you know maybe not if it's, it's not really working for a particular reason. But no, it seems like it's still a bit of a sort of secret. The advantage of batting as a left-hander if you're, you're right-handed. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. This is a really this is a really powerful thing that is not done as much as, as it, it, it should be um, and is a really, really, really simple but powerful way of, of kids generally performing better at baseball. You also talk about parents really tuning in to the latest scientific research regarding sports performance and technique. Are parents willing and able and ready to do that? And if so, how do they do it? Where do they go? In, in what in what sport or in, in, what, in what domain are you talking about? In any specific sport, you you and Mark discuss in your book that there is a lot more information available that based on research and scientific trial and error with uh, statistics and analytics. And if parents access this information in whatever particular sport, it can be a great advantage to their young children coming up in that sport. Do most parents do this? Are they aware of this? And if so, is this something that you're seeing happening more and more in youth sports with their parents? Um, I guess that was one of the reasons for, for writing the, the, the book. It was to take all the kind of cutting-edge research on on sport and the things you can do to help your, your children fulfill their potential and actually put it into a, 
a book that's easy to understand. Um, so you know, from the feedback we've got so far, we've got lots of people telling us that it's telling them a lot of stuff they they didn't they didn't know before. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of kind of contradictory advice. Often it's it's very confusing and not grounded in science. So um, our, our book actually aims to just kind of explain what the science is and yeah, show the nuance and the complications in some areas. Um, but also there's there's clearly there's a lot of areas where common the common perception is contrary to what the science says we should do. You know, the, the role of informal play is, is one area, the, the role of... Tim, are you there? We lost Tim. Well, hopefully Tim will call us back, but my next question to Tim was going to be with my critic's hat on, uh, ladies and gentlemen listening tonight to the show, the program, is all this scientific information and all of this research that provides technique and style, is it overwhelming to kids? Is it a turnoff? Is it taking away the natural progression of being a kid and loving a sport and growing into it? Does it take it away? And how much emphasis is then placed on the idea that your goal is to become that elite athlete. Your goal is not just to play the sport, but we're going to take it all the way. We're going to we're going to do everything we can to train you and teach you to make you the next Tiger Woods, which essentially is what his father did. He went on an, a roll as a teacher, coach, leader, trainer, 100, 100%. Tim, are you back? Yeah, I'm back. Sorry. That's all right. I'm sorry I lost you because I just went into my big speech, which I'll repeat briefly to you because I really want an answer. All of this sounds very interesting and fascinating to me, but is it overkill for kids? Will it turn kids off? Will it be too much for them to deal with at a young age and maybe take the fun out of the game? Because, as you say in, the, in your preface to your book, only 1% of 60 million youngsters playing sports in America are going to reach elite athletism. No, um, it, wouldn't, it won't take the fun out of it. Because one of the messages of our, our book is that in general, what's best for kids to fulfill their athletic potential is also best for them to have more fun. So you know, more, more informal play is, is more fun. Um, and it, it's better for them. Uh, less feedback is more fun and better for them. Uh, less of kind of winning at all costs is better for them and, 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 and more fun as well. Uh, so one of the big messages actually that we have often, we've sort of stuck the joy out of youth sports. Um, and by doing that, we've kind of turned 10-year-old athletes into professionals. And that is, that's just not healthy. We know that when, when kids play a particular sport the whole year round, um, they're more likely to, to suffer from injury, they're more likely to, to burn out. So actually, one of the messages of, of our book is that um, by following some of the, our kind of advice, well, that's, that's better for your kids in the round, you know, because the vast majority of kids are not going to go on to become an elite athlete. Um, so, yeah, in, encouraging them to, to think for themselves, letting them have the kind of freedom to, to play around with their friends, to make mistakes, to, to fail and learn from that. Well, that's a great message for sport. It's also a great message for, for life as well. Um, and there's actually a real danger um, that too many, too many people see kind of children of eight or nine and think you can, you can tell who's going to become an elite athlete just from sort of seeing them and, you can you can pick winners and losers at such a, a young age. Well, that that is not true. One of the messages of our book is talent ID. You know, talent ID is very difficult at a young age, and the later you le you leave it, that that's better for the, the children, um, and it's better for the people making the decisions because they have more right, more chance of deciding in the the, the, the right way. Um, so actually, putting putting more fun into youth sports, making it a bit more kids. You know, kids can try things without being petrified or failed, without being shouted at by their parents or their coach. That, that's better for kids in every way, actually. You you're couldn't be more right, in my opinion. I, I think you're 100% correct. Um, I also think I agree with you that we see youngsters, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, 
as outstanding young athletes and we think we can predict their future. And you, you, you're absolutely right. That's not a good age to predict it. What is a good age? Can you, I think you can see it in high school, but is that too young too or not? Well, so in general, obviously, so the later you're, you're assessing talent, um, the more chance you have of your decision, be, your verdict be, being, being right. But we know that um, when professional teams in baseball, when they draft players out of high school, um, there's much more chance of those predictions, you know, those drafts of them going wrong than if they draft players after they, they, they've gone through college. So that's, again, even, yeah, I mean, some 16, 17, 18-year-olds, they, they look amazing and you think, you know, they're going to become superstars. But, of course, you know, America, the story of Freddie Adu, who was meant to be, you know, the, the big soccer superstar, well, you know, he was getting this contract with Nike age 13 and, you know, he was going to be everything and it didn't didn't work out in that way. Um, so things can be a little bit un- unpredictable. Um and that's actually an argument why you can't treat kids as pro-athletes when they're, when they're just kids because for most of them, they're not going to go on to be professionals, so they've got to have something to, to fall back on. We have to take our next break, Tim. I don't want to lose you. Don't, don't touch that phone. Don't hit the wrong button. We have so much more to talk about. When we come back, I want to ask you about monster parents We've touched on it, and you've been very clear that parents need to back off a bit. But I want to talk about what to do when a parent is overbearing and so much more. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Bruce Cook. This is the Bruce Cook Conversation tonight, and we will be back. Angels Radio. AMA 30. Hiccup Family Neurosciences Institute at Hogue is ranked in the top 1% in the nation by U.S. News and World Report. It provides world-class care through multidisciplinary expert teams, each focusing on specific disorders of the brain and spine, such as stroke, aneurysms, brain tumors, Parkinson's disease, cognitive disorders including Alzheimer's, epilepsy, back pain, as well as spinal cord issues, addiction medicine, and sleep disorders. Our renowned experts offer the best evidence-based care, state-of-the-art technology, and the latest clinical research, all focused on the individual patient. Our stroke program was the first in Orange County named as a certified comprehensive stroke center, and our brain tumor program is the largest in Orange County and among the top volume programs in the Western United States. Hiccup Family Neurosciences Institute, compassionate care, clinical excellence, creative intelligence. To learn more, call 949-516-9075 or visit hogue.org forward slash neuroinstitute. Asking for help in life takes bravery. Women addicted to alcohol and drugs know this very well. Most suffer silently while their lives fall apart, their children and their families in crisis. For more than 40 years in Southern California, New Directions for Women has helped addicted women recover in a nationally recognized treatment facility in Costa Mesa. Their doors are wide open. It just takes the first step. Call New Directions for Women. The number is 888-786-0509. Again, 888-786-0509. You can also visit them at www.com newdirectionsforwomen.org New Directions for Women They know recovery Have you wanted to speak a new language but thought it would be too difficult? Then try Babbel Babbel starts by teaching you words and phrases that gradually get more complex Soon, you're practicing short conversations So in 15 minutes a day you'll be speaking a new language in a few weeks Babbel is built around real life It teaches you practical conversations that you will actually use Babbel language for life. Start the new year with a new language. Get up to 60% off now at Babbel.com. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com. For the ones who know that a little late is always too late. And that the clock doesn't stop just because you're missing a part. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry. And our KeepStock inventory management solutions help ensure you have the right stuff in the right place 
at exactly the right time. Visit Granger.com slash Keepstock to learn more. Granger for the ones who get it done. Angels Radio. AM 830. And I'm back. It's Bruce Cook and the Bruce Cook Conversation tonight with Tim Wigmore from London. Tim, before break, I asked you to talk about monster parents. How do we control them? How do we teach them that they're wrecking their kids' sports life when they're too aggressive and too omnipresent and giving too much criticism? Well, I think the, the facts are probably a good way of doing that because those monster parents, as you call them, well, they clearly they want what's best for, the, for their kids. Um, on the, you know, on the sports field, I think they just need to understand that what's best for their kids on the sports field is having the chance to, to fail. It's learning for the, for themselves, um, and it's not being reliant on them being told 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 how they should how they should play. Um, and because the simple fact is, if you tell your kid how they should play, um, that will just put too much pressure on them it will then it will stunt their their creativity and it will leave them unable to think for themselves um because the crucial thing about informal play and why that is so important well that gives you basically a toolkit um it gives you more you know if you're you're playing around in pickup basketball or whatever well, that gives you more different situations um that you play then also just gives you the experience of okay how do i adapt when this bad thing happens you know you're playing a 3v3 game and, and your friend has to go and do his homework, well then suddenly your, your team's only on, on two, uh, that's a real handicap, so you've got to think, you've got to think how, you can, how you can adapt to that, and that's obviously really, really difficult and that's a great, a great experience um, so parents who just tell their kids what to do and sort of shout at the coach and the referee and stuff um, it's very, very bad for their, for, their, for their development and it sucks all the, the joy out of sport as well Switching gears a little bit, you also talk about the fact that practice does not always mean perfect. What do you mean by that? Okay, so if I want to uh, to practice my my performance and um, want to make myself feel good in in a drill, you know, if I'm playing it in in soccer, for example, I could just practice passing the ball down the line to my my teammate and back, and we might feel really good about about ourselves. We kind of each pass is going in the same in the same place, and it looks like it's really good. But actually, that's not how matches work work at all. Um, there's, there's kind of chaos, basically, um, and so there's, there's this tension between what between uh, basically between performance and learning in, in practice. So you often you basically you learn more when you fail more. This is the optimal challenge point, is what this is called, which is basically the the point at which you, you learn the most is when it's really difficult and you're failing you're failing a lot um so if it's too easy you don't don't know anything so you might have a practice where it's really easy you kind of leave feeling really good about yourself but you haven't actually you haven't learned you haven't learned very much um and so having that uh that practice or that game which is really difficult and you're you're failing a lot well that's that's much better for you and you go you go back to the kind of monster parents or the problem is the monster parents if they see that their child is struggling. They weren't weren't like that. You know, they might blame the coach for picking them in the the wrong position, or you know, saying the drill's too difficult. Well, if it is difficult, that's exactly that's that's how it, it should be. Um, so it kind of comes back to appreciating the short, the, the long term differences again, um, and saying, yeah, you you're gonna you're gonna fail. You, you you need to fail. You need to experience new difficulties, um, and you need to kind of learn that not everything can be controlled because when you're Playing sport at a high, high, at a high level, there's a lot of chaos. Stuff happens, stuff that you couldn't have imagined. Um, and if you're just used to your, yeah, your teacher or your, or your mum or your dad telling telling you how you should, you should, you should play, well, they won't be able to do that for you, and then you won't really have anywhere to go. No kidding, and that is, of course, the excitement of the game in professional sports when that chaos does happen and the surprises take the players by total surprise let me let me ask you something that really fascinated me about your work and that was your discussion 
when you're looking at youth athletes that seem to have very similar talent and skill levels at a certain age, the difference that is very recognizable is that the potential kid who has promised to be greater than seems to have a wiser or a, for lack of a better words, a more focused point of view on how the game should be played. And that mental factor is what ends up making a difference. Yeah, so the psychology of, of sport is, is obviously essential to, to, to sport and it's central to who, who goes on to be the, the best in sport. Um, so there's been lots of, of studies which, which basically emphasize how important the mental side, side is, how important, you know, just the art of, you know, how important being committed and dedicated is um, and, and grit. And also what, what seems to be so important is we talk a lot about failure, so it's responding to, to failure. Um, and often with, with nearly athletes, um, who are kind of prodigies as kids, and you know, start on the high school team, and then they kind of they they don't they don't they don't advance really beyond that. Well, what seems to go wrong for them is they encounter failure, and they do not know how to how to deal with it and how to respond to it. Um, and it's athletes who have maybe a toolkit for de- learning to deal with failure. They're the ones that seem to go on and to kind of advance. And we talked about the sibling effect at, at the start of our chat. Well, one. One explanation, actually, for why young siblings do better at sport is they're better at coping with failure. They're going to fail a lot when they're when they're kids and they're playing with their older brother and sister, and, and that means again when they're on the high school team and, and they and they fail and had they had those obstacles, they don't get discouraged in the same way because they they're used to they're used to kind of learning from that. Um, so again, for to kind of flip this back to, to parents, one of the you know crucial things. It's how do you give your kids that that toolkit? How do you give them the the skills to be able to to actually to cope with failure? And, and obviously, part of that answer is just actually very simple. It's allowing them, them to fail. If you kind of insulate them from, from failure, well, then they'll have a failure that you can't control. You can't get out of the way, and suddenly they'll get really discouraged, and they might you know, stop playing the sport or whatever. Um, so it's your responsibility to, as a parent, to really not take all those obstacles out of the way. Some of those obstacles are, are good, and you know some challenges and failure is very, very healthy and for young athletes and actually for, for young kids in general, I, I suggest as well. So, if a child fails badly at a particular sport or game, and the parent should let the child fail, they should not blast them with criticism. They probably shouldn't coddle them with sympathy either. So, what do they do? Well, so a really good good device is. Rather than just telling them what to do, it's asking questions. That's a really, really good, good way of doing things. Um, so we talked with, with Judy Murray, um, the mother of Jamie and Andy Murray, the tennis players, and she said her feedback was not telling them her kids what to do, is asking them questions. So rather than say, you lost this match because of your backhand, you know, what went wrong today? Well, the things you could have done better. Um, and what that kind of parenting does, well, that encourages kids to take ownership over their own performance and it encourages them to sort of think critically and then basically you, you kind of want to train your your kids to be their own best coach um, and if they can be their own best coach and learn learn to sort of diagnose their strengths and weaknesses that way they can constantly have that kind of self-feedback really rather than rely on you to do it for them you want to kind of empower them to be able to do it for themselves and that will put them in a better position to actually to learn at a much faster rate. Great point. Let's switch to the the items of speed and size and strength in sports and how important are they combined with everything you're talking about. Where do they fit in? So one answer is obviously it varies a lot by sport. So we know that if you're um, a U.S. man aged 20 to 40, you've got a one in five chance of, uh, and, you're, oh, and you're over seven foot tall, you have a one in five chance of playing in the, the NBA. Well, that tells you that clearly genes are important and size is important. Um, and it, 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 the amount that these factors 
are important. It varies by, by sport. So in you know in in rowing, a sport like that, well, size again is, is very important. If you're five foot, well, you can't be an elite NBA player. You can't be a you know, top rower either. Um, in in a sport like in in baseball or in in tennis or in soccer, well, there's actually there's kind of lots of different ways to to reach the top. Lots. It kind of takes all sorts of sizes. Um, and in those sports, therefore, the kind of role of of genes and stuff is is probably less, and there's more that you can do to develop. You know, if you're not the the fastest, well, you can become incredibly uh, skillful. Your tap is incredibly good, and that can make you a hugely valuable player, even if you're not if you're not particularly fast, for example, on a soccer field. Do you think that makes those sports more democratic, more likable to the general public because of that factor? Uh, I think there is a kind of there's a sort of magic to a sport in which you can have a kind of seven foot player alongside a, a, a five foot five player. Um, there is something to, to be said for that. Yeah, I think there's a sort of a charm to it and a kind of every man appeal a, a little bit. I think so too. I uh, I think that it's great that um, the size is not always the most important thing. Uh, I think it makes it so much more interesting. Believe it or not, our hour is passing so quickly, and we have one more break to take, Tim. And when we come back, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, but we've I have two really big questions to ask you when we come back, and I'm not going to tease you with them. We're going to take a quick break, and the conversation will be right back. As part of the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute, Hoag's Neurospine Program offers innovative methods to reduce pain, inflammation, and improve mobility safely and effectively, often without surgery. Should you need surgery, Hoag is a leader with minimally invasive techniques, 3D imaging, and robotics to restore your golf swing or your swing dance. Many of our patients go home in just a few hours, walking the very next day. Call our dedicated nurse navigator at 949 549- 537-2931 for an evaluation or visit hoag.org forward slash sign help. Liberty. Liberty Mutual Insurance Company customizes your renter's insurance so you only pay for what you need. Great. As a minimalist, I need simple insurance. Nice place. No furniture? Nothing sparked joy. Except for this fruit bowl. Well, with Liberty Mutual, you only pay for what you need. So there's that. I mean, look. So beautiful. So... Empty again. Only pay for what you need at LibertyMutual.com. Liberty, 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 Liberty. Hiring the best people can transform your business and help take it to another level. Indeed can certainly help you find those talented people. We have nearly three quarters of all job seekers in the U.S., according to Comscore, and smart tools to help you find the best candidate for you. Indeed also provides flexibility to only pay for what you need and won't lock you into any long-term contracts. Claim your $75 credit to get more quality candidates fast when you post your first job at Indeed.com slash high impact. That's Indeed.com slash high impact. Terms and conditions apply. KFC's Colonel Sanders here. We all love sitting down to a home-cooked meal with family, but there's rarely enough hours in the day to do the cooking. So let me do the cooking for you. Well, not me personally, and that's just a turn of phrase. Your KFC will do the actual cooking. The point is, let someone else do the home cooking for you. Come to KFC and pick up a $20 fill-up. That's eight pieces of chicken or 12 tenders and all the fixings to feed your family. Order ahead or use contactless delivery at KFC.com. Limited time only at participating locations. Only prices may vary. Tax and substitutions extra. Delivery service and additional fee supply. The United States has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. At the Equal Justice Initiative, we believe mass incarceration has to end. That we have to create a system that's fair, reliable, and just There are thousands of innocent people in our jails and prisons. It's time for change. We still live in a country where there is this presumption of dangerousness and guilt that gets assigned to black and brown people. It created laws that legally segregated black people, marginalized them, deprived them of basic opportunities. We're not free in this country. We're burdened by a long history of slavery. We developed a narrative that black people aren't as good as white people. We have to confront our history of racial injustice and commit to a new era of truth. There's something better waiting for us. There's something that feels more like equality, something that feels more like freedom. Truth can inspire change. 
Please learn more at EJI.org. Angels Radio. AM 830. A beautiful melody to bring us back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Bruce Cook, and this is the Bruce Cook Conversation. Tim, women in sports are... Hi, we're back. Women in sports are a huge, big deal. There are so many things happening for the female athlete. What's going on? What's the difference in terms of training a girl as a young, as opposed to a young man? So that I mean, there's not a huge amount of, of difference. Um, actually, one of the we talked about the sibling effect earlier. We're often in the case of of top top women's soccer players they they had a they had an older brother they they play with as, as kids um and that that can be a re- real benefit because again the physical disadvantage of playing with an older sibling that's that's probably going to be greater if, if you're a girl and, and they're a boy um so in general the the kind of fundamental training methods and so on are pretty similar for for girls as for as for boys um Probably what what I would say is that uh, for the best females in in sport as as kids, um, often the advantages of playing up, playing with older kids, you know, that's often even more important. Um, so we talked with Lena Del Don for our book, the best. Um, when she was 11, she was playing basketball with 16 year olds, so five years above. That's a massive thing. Um, so yeah, I guess the importance of playing up being even greater is probably the the biggest difference I'd point to in, in women's sport, um, but it, yeah, most of it is pretty similar, to be honest. What do you think about women's uh, sports demanding equal pay? For example, the the big issue with women's soccer players that I'm sure you're very familiar with. Is that right? Is it fair? Is it justified? Do they attract the same dollars uh, in audience participation and spending or not? Uh, well, I know in the case of the U.S. women's national soccer team, there was a you know, famous example where there was a year where they um, generated more money for the, the soccer association, um, generated more revenue, and they still didn't get, get paid nearly as much. And obviously, they're more successful than the, the men's team as well. Um, now, I think if you look at the history of, of women's sport, there's there's often been a kind of active active suppression, actually. You know, so in soccer in the U.K. Um, Women's teams were banned from using the same grounds as men for 50 years until 1971. Um, so all these obstacles were, were, were put in place. Um, and the, the, the point is, uh, as more investment comes in, stands will improve, and there'll be more interest as, as well. And how about how about women that are trying to break through in totally dominated male sports, including football? Do you see that happening? Uh, well, we know that in, women's, in soccer, the rise of women's sport, of, of women's soccer, has been huge uh, recently, and I see that trajectory as continuing. Um, and again, yeah, you see more investment, you see improvement in standards, more interest. Let me ref- uh, let me so. rephrase the question. I think what I meant to ask you was, do you ever see the day when male and females will play on the same team together? Uh, I don't think. I don't think we'll see the day of that uh, because there's, there's biologically there's there's big differences between males and, and females, and we see that in in tennis where you know there's separate categories for for, for a reason, um, and I I think all the biology says you know that will that will continue. Well, we're going to see about that. I don't know. I I, I tend to agree with you, but uh, maybe not. As we close, Tim, I want you to go into what you talk about in the book about the future of science and technology and innovation in sports and in teaching kids how to perform. More explanation about the science behind all of your research. What what can you tell us? Yeah, thank you. In our you know, last section of our book, The Best, uh, How Are the Athletes Are Made, uh, we look into the future and future developments. Um, one exciting development is virtual reality um, and we're seeing 
a rise in players basically using headsets to basically to ha- help help themselves train, help themselves kind of do the kind of uh, the tactical training and stuff. So you can basically now wear headsets, and you can it can be as if you're out there on the field as well. Um, and that's a really great way of training your your mind. Um, so that's something we're going to see see more. We're going to see basically more personalized ways of, of training, you know, more personalized way, ways of eating. That's all going to rise. We're going to see um, a rise in, in kind of in sleep sleep coaches and stuff. We've seen now athletes with personal sleep, sleep, sleep coaches. Um, I know um, the Uro ring, which is basically uh, a ring that you wear where, you, where you're sleeping and monitors your, your heart rate, you know, whether you, you how deeply you're sleeping, whether you wake up at all, um, that's being used by, by more athletes. So we're gonna, yeah, there's a lot in, in the sleep space because um, the benefits of sleep are pretty remarkable in terms of how much that improves performance. Um, so those are some of the things we, we can we can see out. I think yeah, much more 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 personalised, uh, more individual, and more kind of more 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 and ways of replicating. And give experience of playing on, under pressure, um, and are there there are more ways of, of doing that? So, for example, if you're you're, you're practicing a penalty shootout, well, if you practice to a, a smaller goal, that gives you advance, that gives you experience when it's a bit harder. And suddenly, if you're doing a penalty shootout and you see the goal is bigger than you're, you're used to, well, that may, might make it seem easier when you normally think of it as being being harder. So. Um, yeah, there's a, a lot a lot that's going on that's, that's very in- interesting. Would you say that the changes are coming day by day and that these changes are revolutionary and will change all sports and all people involved in days, weeks, years to come? Well, we're certainly we're seeing more money um, in sport than ever before, which means more attention given to anything that can improve improve performance. Um, I think, yeah, virtual reality is certainly one thing I see as coming in, in more. Um, there clearly will be things that are promised that don't deliver on, on that promise. Um, but I do see, yeah, room for lots of innovation um, ahead. Um, and, and again, we, we might, I suppose we, that threatens to kind of make elite athletes kind of more detached from the rest of never before because rather than just kind of playing like like we do on Saturdays and Sundays but being a lot a lot better um they have all these resources behind them all these you know individualized ways of training um which kind of put them on a, a different different world to us uh, it certainly is is uh, seemingly the case and what is definitely coming it already is here frankly tim how do we get this book titled the best how Elite Athletes Are Made here in America. How do we get it? Where do we go? Thank you. Yeah, uh, it should be in good bookshops. It's, it's on, on Amazon to order, um, which is probably the easiest way, way, way of getting it. Um, yeah, ordering on Amazon is obviously available in ebook, in, um, in audio as well, um, as hard copy. Um, so, yeah, I hope everyone checks it out. I think for, for parents, the coaches and the kind of yeah anyone interested interested in sport um, it has a a, a lot uh, a lot that, that I think everyone can kind of learn from um, and yeah we we talked to so many great athletes athletes for the, for the book um, so it's been great to share their insights as well. I think those interviews are fascinating and they will they will compel your readers uh, to learn a lot. Yeah, I have learned a lot tonight on on radio talking to you. I thank you for taking the time to call in from London again. Listeners, the book is called The Best, How Elite Athletes Are Made by Mark Williams, Tim Wigmore. Easiest thing is to go to Amazon.com in printed form, in Kindle, and also audio. Tim, thanks so much. Good night, good good times, and stay well, and, and take care of yourself in London. Thank you. All the best to you, and thanks for the chat. Really enjoyed it. Me too. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we only have a minute left, and I, I just wanted to to say to everybody out there one simple thing. Wear your mask. It is not political. It is not a violation of your First Amendment rights, no matter what you're hearing. It is simply a case of protecting yourself and saving a life, a life that may very well be your own.
Do not listen to all the noise. Just wear the stupid mask until we can get through this mess and return to a good and normal life. Do me a favor. Think about it next time you refuse to put it on or think that it's a pain in the neck or it's an intrusion or it's not going to happen to you or nobody's going to tell me what to wear or wear a mask. I saw a news report last week where a woman was just violent in a department store when she was asked to wear a mask and she was rude and horrible and you have no right to tell me to wear a mask. And you know what I thought? I thought there are some standards in humanity and in public life. What if the person decided they just didn't want to wear their clothes and go to the department store and somebody said, why aren't you wearing your clothes? Well, you have no right to tell me what to wear. How is it the same or different just to wear the mask at a time of need? Anyway, I know that sounds ridiculous, but think about it. Please wear your mask. Please stay safe because I need you to come back and listen every Sunday night to Angels Radio when we can talk together on this conversation. And don't forget, if you want to hear it again, Go to podcast. I'm on every one of them. Apple, Spotify, Anchor, your favorite. And uh, we have posted just about every show we've done this past year. Lastly, Happy New Year, everybody. Take care. Take care of each other. And come back next Sunday at 6, and we'll talk again. You've been listening to The Bruce Cook Conversation. Hear The Bruce Cook Conversation on Sundays at 6 p.m. Pacific on AM830 KLAA. And hear the podcasts of every show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public.